Welcome to another author event at the Poison Pen Bookstore. I'm John Charles, and today we're delighted to have back with us one of our favorite authors, Kate Carlisle, as well as one of my new favorite authors, Michelle Hoffman. Both authors are here to talk about their latest book. Before we begin, though, I do have one brief commercial message. If this is your first time attending an author event at the Poison Pen, I encourage you to sign up for our e-news. It's real easy to do. On your way out, stop by the front desk. They'll help you get signed up. Each week, you'll find out who's coming to the bookstore, what new books we have coming in. It's really easy. It's a great way to keep up with what's new at the Poison Pen. Now, I'd like to welcome Michelle Hoffman and Kate Carlisle. Thanks for having me. My first question to both of you is you've had rather fascinating lives before you became published. So can you tell us a little bit about who Kate and who Michelle was before your first book debuted? Why don't we start with you, Kate? And I know what you did, so if you don't tell them, I will. <laughs> Just not sure where to start. <laughs> I was born. Um, I uh, worked in television for many years um, on real, so mostly uh, really highbrow shows like The Gong Show and The Dating Game and these kinds of shows. And I, uh, I was a chaperone and and uh, that got a little old. And you know the shows eventually die out, basically. Some of them come back, but um, I spent all my money in Europe, and then I came back, and the shows were canceled, as I said, and I needed a job. So my girlfriend said, you can come work at my company. It's so easy. Legal secretaries. <laughs> all you do is type. I barely knew how to type, because I didn't have to type. I worked in show business. <laughs> so I... Um, I managed to get a job as a legal secretary for about 12 years. And then um, during that time, I thought I'd go to law school because, you know, why not? And I absolutely hated it. And I, they, you have to learn to think in a different way. And I was in, incapable of thinking. Uh, you pick a side, basically. Whatever side your client is on, that's the side that you argue for. And there's a lot of arguing, and I'm just hate that. Anyway, so I did that for a year to prove that I could. And when I was going to law school, um, I started writing because what else are you going to do? Write a book. Uh, so I started writing, and it took me about 10 more years before I published my first book. And here I am. The rest is history. <laughs> what about you, Michelle? Um, so I was a journalist and I wrote for the Arizona Republic and I, um, mostly reviewed theater for them around Scottsdale. And I was also a and &E writer and, um, that was a lot of fun. Um, and I, ha I have two children, my husband and I have two children and I would, um, it was a perfect job. I would on, go see Sunday matinees get dinner, queued up, go see Sunday matinees, feed everybody dinner, and then I'd be up all night writing theater reviews. And then Monday, I would just do nothing. <laughs> um, and towards the, uh, after 2012, um, 
the paper was kind of thinning out and you didn't have drama critics or pop music critics or, you know, I guess we saw the movie critic. I don't even know if he's there anymore. But um, so I started writing short stories. Um, and then when my daughter went off to college, so the book is about a housewife having a midlife crisis and her daughters leave for college. So I thought I'm going to write about that because I really had a hard time dropping her off. She went to Purdue and um, that's far away. And I just remember there's a line that made it to the book where she said, if you cry, I'm going to cry. And I said, okay. And my husband spirited me away and we got in the car and I burst into sobs. Um, it's, it's just this change in life. So I, I decided it's, it's time to write a novel and I had the time for it. And so, um, I became a novelist, I guess. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about the second ending. So the second ending is about a former piano prodigy who, as I said, she drops her daughters off at college and she has this midlife crisis and she, when she was a child, she, everybody made a big fuss over her. And she had that same trajectory as all child stars. And she kind of burned out at 12. And, at, and her grandmother exploited her and took all her money, um, which is funny. I'm reading Britney Spears' memoir right now, and I'm like, oh, my God, this should have made it into the book. <laughs> but she... Um, makes a living writing commercial jingles and that pays the bills uh, pretty well. And, but by the time she has this midlife crisis, um, she feels like she really is a true artist and she wants to prove it. And she goes on this dueling piano competition show, which is a reality TV show in, in my book. And the book is about her journey um, to rid herself of these insecurities and, and all these things, you know, she has plagued herself with over the years that she's a fraud. And so she has to work through that. And, um, that's, you guys will see in the end if she makes it or not. Um, I did grow up playing piano. I was five when I started lessons and, um, I very much enjoyed playing. I was not pushed to be a performer or anything. And so it was, you know, largely I elected, you know, my path as a piano. And I still play every day. Um, I don't know if my family likes these 7.30 a.m. practice. <laughs> my son is living with us for a year. Um, he took a job in Scottsdale and he woke up the other morning. He's like, oh. That song again, over and over. <laughs> Practice makes perfect. <laughs> so, yes, so I read about all that in the book. Kate, what is your new book, The Twelve Books of Christmas, about? Well, The Twelve Books of Christmas um, starts in Dharma, our beloved uh, characters, Brooklyn and Derek, are have a new house in Dharma and they're opening it up to their relatives and friends for the first time. And she's petrified, freaking out. She made the wrong decision. She didn't want to do this, but her sister's catering it. She doesn't have to do anything anyway. She's kind of neurotic that way, but um, 
she gets a phone call from a dear friend, Claire, who lives in Scotland and who uh, was living in a castle and organizing the Laird's weapons uh, collection, yes, and he has a lot of collect, uh, collected uh, daggers and swords and broadswords and lockaber swords and all kinds of fun things. So she was um, putting that together and they fell in love. So they call Derek and Brooklyn and ask them to be the uh, witnesses for their wedding, which they want to take place on New Year's Eve, actually right after New Year's Eve, after midnight, um, which um, in Scotland, they have something called Hogmanay. And it's an ancient uh, tradition where uh, basically um, you clean out your house and you welcome guests, except that you don't really welcome guests, but some guests show up and won't leave because it's against tradition to tell them to leave. So some don't go away. So they go to Scotland after Christmas. They have a Christmas with their families and family and friends, and they go to Scotland, and they're <laughs> her parents come along because they have um, become good friends with Claire, and she insists that the parents come along, and so do I as the author, as the, uh, <laughs> as the author, um, because cozies are all about community. So when you take them somewhere else, you need to bring along some of their friends and relatives or um, it's a whole different book. So the mother and the father are there, which um, adds to the story. And anyway, they go to the castle and Brooklyn is excited because the last time she was there, the library was a mess. They never paid any attention to the library. Well, now they have hired a librarian who's a little shady, we don't know about her. And she can't get into the library. The librarian has the only key. Claire doesn't have the key because she hasn't thought about it. And so Brooklyn needs to get into the library because it turns out that there are 12 books missing from the library and they're all Christmas books. And some are very rare, some are commonplace, but 12 of them are missing. And she has asked Brooklyn to try to track down the books. And that's sort of the basis for the story. Kate, every successful mystery series needs a hook, and you're very successful at what you do. Can you tell us a little bit about the hook to the bibliophile mysteries and why you chose that topic? Well, the bibliophile mystery hook is the book. So um, when you talk about your process, you're writing a book, um, a lot of people will start with uh, a situation or a murder or a something. I start with the book because Brooklyn is a bookbinder who specializes in rare book um, restoration. So as soon as I get the book in my head, I can start writing because that book is the catalyst for the murder, the suspects, everything that happens in my book is going to center on the book that she's working on. So it's been well, all kinds of books. Um, Dickens, Oliver Twist, uh, 
Goethe's Faust. Um, I could go on and on. <laughs> but um, so I always start with the book, and that is the hook. The book is the hook. <laughs> Michelle, you talked a little bit about the second ending being about midlife crises in a sense, but in your book, you kind of show us that they're not always the way we think of them with race cars and toupees and things like that. They can end a different way. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So when I was writing, when I started the book and I was outlining it, um, I wanted a midlife crisis to have a positive effect because I think that's whatever is inside us is pushing us um, out of our comfort zone. And, um, you know, we usually give up on our dreams in our youth and we get, you know, into middle age and we think it's too late for us. And I wanted to, so Prudence, the main character of my, my book is 48 and she's a housewife. And that's, was the perfect setup for, you know, trying to convey to my readers that it is not too late, that, you know, it, it is you know, getting your, getting things in order and going after your dream. But, um, it, I, I think everybody has a special talent. I think everybody's good at something. And, um, during the pandemic, I remember reading about how people were leaving their jobs and, and wanting something, something more meaningful. And that really inspired me to develop this character and, and the other characters in the book. So everybody in the book has a dream and you kind of see how they go after the dream. And, and so um, I was just talking to an editor the other day and um, she said, I started taking singing lessons. And I was so happy to hear that because I think it's, it's a day-to-day -day kind of thing when we go after a dream. It's just, it's just getting through that day, what gets us out of bed in the morning. Um, and if it's looking forward to going to this lesson or looking forward to playing a piece on the piano, um, that's, that's what I wanted to convey in the book, that... Um, it's, it's your, the quality of your day, the satisfaction you get out of your day when you go after a dream. Kate, you've written a couple of holiday themed mysteries. What is it about, um, the holidays that drive people to kill? I should make a list because I, Christmas drives me crazy. I must say, I, can never think of anything to buy. Everybody gets a gift card. I'm so boring. Um, and I'm not a very good cook, so everyone else <laughs> cooks or we go out. I mean, it's just so sad. But we always put up a tree and we decorate the house like we're crazy. Like, I know how I'm doing Christmas. I don't. I don't know how to do Christmas. So I would kill, probably. <laughs> um, I don't. Really, I mean, I don't think I have that instinct, but I've been really, you know, in a frenzy. I think you could, you know. Is it partly because we have this expectation of seeing the holidays in film and on television as being perfect and we're not? It's not. It's never that way. It's never that way. Yeah, I, the expectations and the, I, I don't know, does the suicide rate go up over Christmas? It's just horrible. 
the the yeah the expectation that it's going to be a good time and a wonderful thing and you're going to have a lovely reunion with your family <laughs> not so much yeah and i and i don't know why i've well i i'm currently writing my third christmas book which is really weird i never thought i would but um yeah got a lot of dead people and a lot of people die Michelle, one of the things I loved about your book was you write about the power of music in our lives. You almost made me want to go back to taking piano lessons. I'm not, but you're that Should. good about explaining how it can be so important to us. Can you talk about music? Yeah, and, and we all, music is just this universal, everybody likes music. And it, it, I don't know anybody who said, oh, I hate music. You know, everybody likes music because it brings up um, music can do a lot of things. It can bring up emotions. Um, it's like a scent almost. We remember if we hear a song, we remember where we were, you know, when we heard that song first or it reminds us of somebody. It taps into a memory and um, music is inspiring. It's motivational. It's it's pleasure. Um, so. I, when I was writing the book, I um, went into my music library and I pulled a bunch of pieces and I would write in the morning and then I would go to my piano and I would play something and I would write how it made me feel if it tapped into a memory, um, if it made me feel sad. Music can make us feel sad in a good way. Um, so it really puts you in touch with your emotions. It's a great medium to put you in touch with your emotions. And, um, I don't overanalyze it in the book <laughs> like that, but I think it, you know, it is, it's powerful and we all have a favorite song and we all have a favorite performer and we all have a favorite genre of music. I like a whole, my parents were really into Frank Sinatra and I love Frank Sinatra. So, you know, I have a few of their albums now. And also um, Herb Alpert, he's on tour right now, but my dad had all his records. And um, my son actually went to go see him in Denver with his girlfriend. So it's music can be generational. Um, so yes, I think music is very powerful. Let's talk a little bit about settings because both of you take a different approach for your books. Kate, you kind of create a fictional world in Dharma, is it? It's based on a real kind of things, but you are able to um, put your own touches on it. Whereas Michelle, your book is loosely kind of based on Scottsdale and California, Los Angeles. Is it easier to do a real setting or is it easier to control the setting in a fictionalized sense? Um, I set the book in Dharma, but it's also in San Francisco. And whenever she's in San Francisco, I have to get out maps. Because San Francisco has a lot of one-way streets. And if you go the wrong way, you will hear from <laughs> you will hear from readers who live in San Francisco and tell me I'm full of it. Um, but Dharma is a land of make-believe, <laughs> even though it's based on a, a real-life world that I lived in for a while. Um, 
And I like Dharma. I like the make-believe, but um, I love San Francisco, so I put it there because if I was going to start writing books, I wanted it to be everything that I love, which is Dharma, the wine country, <laughs> um, San Francisco, you know, all those great things. I lived in San Francisco for many years. <laughs> I wouldn't know if the street went, I mean... <laughs> I took the Bart. I took Bart a lot. Um, I when I started. So this most of the book takes place in Scottsdale, and yeah. So I lived in San Francisco for a long time. I was born in Colorado, raised, went to college there, um, and I absolutely love Phoenix. Um, I love the extreme of the desert, and. As you know, we made a lot of news this summer <laughs> with the heat. And I was on the phone with my agents and they were like, can you go outside? <laughs> yeah, well, it's like our hair doesn't melt into our heads. You know, it's not pleasant unless we're in the pool or something. But but I think it's fascinating for people to read about the desert and to read about, you know, the animals in the desert. And um, the Hotel Valley Ho is in the book. And um, one, one reader contacted me and she went on a tour of the Hotel Valley Ho after reading the novel. And that was, that made me really happy um, because I do think it's a fabulous place and a lot of mid-century uh, architecture. So um, Part of the book takes place in Los Angeles, and I'm not as familiar with Los Angeles, um, but I have, you know, visited many times. But I do think the desert, the desert rules in the book. <laughs> so you'll recognize a lot of places. Let's talk a little bit about your writing process, because I know readers are often fascinated if you have a set routine, if you just write when inspiration strikes. I'm guessing, Michelle, in your case, being a journalist may have helped you, or did it hinder you? Then we'll go to Kate. Yes, it definitely helped. Um, being a journalist, you're on a deadline, and people are waiting for things. In, in print journalism back then, you could not be late. I mean, it was it, it was imperative that you made that deadline. And so I did that for so many years. Um, writing a book, you really don't have a deadline. So I would impose my own deadlines on the novel. Um, I don't write very quickly, but, um, you know, sometimes I'll write like a paragraph and it'll be, two hours in the morning of slugging out this paragraph. Um, and and it, it'll be a, just very slow. But I will make myself after breakfast or after, you know, I've walked the dog or something to go back in there and just to get, you know, an, another thousand words on the page. So, yeah, there's a lot of discipline in, um, you know, writing a novel if you want to get it done. I know people take a long time, you know, decades to write a novel. Um, I always worry if something's going to happen to me before the novels. <laughs> so I think I always want to get it finished. That's fear. Um, I have a little of that, too. When I first started writing or publishing, um, I was writing three or four books a year. 
And I was doing that because I started late and I uh, sort of hit the ground running is how I looked at it. It was just like, I've got to get some of this, you know, everyone I knew who was, you know, 10 or 20 years younger than me, they got five books out. I got to get more books. Um, so I was writing really fast and I had a, uh, and I was working full time. So I would get up early in the morning, write for three hours and go to work. Um, now <laughs> I've sort of lost that, <laughs> that spirit of youth, <laughs> fake spirit of youth. Um, I, I would say that my process is, um, well, I cry a lot. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> it's just slower. I'm just slower. And I, and I don't want to be because I want to, I have another idea that I want to do. So I want to finish this book and get out, you know, under it and um, start the new one. But I'm just slower now. And it's, um, I write all day. So I don't know how it's working out. But anyway, um, I work with a plotting plot group. And uh, when the book is done, I um, go over with my editor. And she is very enthusiastic and um, lively. And so we go back and forth. And there's always something new that comes in. So then I have a few we weeks to add that in. And I don't know. And then I cry. I think I should interject. You're not that slow, Kate, because you still do two books a year, don't you? Yeah, so you're ahead of some. My next question. I'm slow. <laughs> My next question for both of you is, Kate, you've written more books than we can count. Michelle, you finished your first book. Does writing the second book, does writing the 30th book, does it get any easier? No. I mean... <laughs> No, but also I put more into the books. I feel like I do, but then sometimes I go back and read, you know, my third or fourth book and I put a lot into that. So it it doesn't get as easy. There's a lot more distractions these days. Um, there's a husband at home and... Uh, <laughs> he just wants to take up time and space and air um and i love him very much because i know he's watching um, <laughs> um yeah a lot of distractions but i um i know wow um you go ahead does it get easier for you now oh, that you finished yeah. a book? no 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 um yeah i working on the second book and what well, you're creating something out of nothing. And um, I think it, this is just as difficult as the first one um, because, you know, you, you care about where it's, it's going and where it ends up. And I'd like to write the ending first. Um, there's something in, in, the a three-act structure of a novel where there's that aha moment for the protagonist. And I really like to have a grip on that. Um, it's kind of why you write the book. So in the second ending, the book is about, you know, a dream and, and having this dream and realizing this dream. So 
I usually spend time on that aha moment. And then that kind of starts to pull, you know, the story through from the beginning. Then I'll start at the beginning and go. But yeah, sometimes you spend all day writing a chapter and you wake up the next day and it's like, that sucks. That delete. It's like that movie, delete. <laughs> um, so, yes, it's always a challenge. I think it will always be a challenge. If Even if I get to Kate's, Kate's level, <laughs> I think it'll still be a challenge. Um, I do have one thing to add to my process is that I have to write the first sentence before I can go on. And sometimes that takes months. No, it, it takes a while. Because Your editor could be listening, Kate. <laughs> I know, right? It, it, I feel like that's like the hook for the book, and it gets the character into the book, and everything gets started. So I try to spend time on that, first of all. Michelle, you just mentioned you think of your novels in three-act structures. Is that from your theater background? reviewing plays um could be i just for me it makes the most sense is to picture it in three acts um and yeah it's it's just it makes sense and i did love it in the theater when um you know i could tell kind of tell where the play was going but it's just i think it's just easier for me to you know write in three acts structure now that you're both published, what piece of advice do you wish you know now that you could go back in time when you were first starting out as a writer and tell yourself? Um, it doesn't get easier. <laughs> and I'm not trying to be silly, but it, it really doesn't get easier. And I did think it would get easier because why wouldn't it? Because now you have some, you know, stuff under you. It doesn't. It's just as hard. Um, I would say yeah, it is. It is really hard, and especially with the first novel before I had an agent, it would be like, well, am I, am I able to do this? And um, there is, I think, in every writer there is something deep down that you said, yes, you can do this and keep pushing yourself and don't be afraid of, you know, don't fear failure. Just keep pushing yourself. I, I'm almost positive every writer goes through that. And um, so my advice would be to trust the process. I mean, it's um, a big thing to tackle and get support from wherever you, you know, can get support from, but just continue and keep going and um, don't worry. And, and publishing has always been, I remember being at the San Francisco Writers Conference in 2006 and this, somebody from publishing got up and gave, you go to different little lectures and he was like, it's real grim out there, guys. <laughs> <laughs> And I, all the writers, aspiring writers, like, oh, no, but I'm already through this book. And, you know, it, it's always going to be like that. It's always going to be a challenge. And even now, you know, people are saying, oh, but I think we're wired for story. I think everybody 
wants a story. Everybody wants to be entertained by story in whatever format um, that is. So maybe I'm talking too much about that, but I honestly believe that just to trust the process and keep going. Let's take a slight pivot. You're both writers, but I'm guessing you're both readers. What has your journey been like as a reader? Are there particular books throughout your life that you've said, this inspires me, this makes me want to be a writer, books that are special to you? Talk about Kate and Michelle as readers. Um, I was a huge reader as a child, and my parents always had books in the house. Um, and I do remember a couple of, um, I, and I loved mysteries. I, when I was a child, I just loved mysteries. And um, I do remember when I was 15 that Catcher in the Rye was banned yet again. And I always saw that book on my brother's shelf in his room. And it looked like a very boring, required reading book. Oh, it's banned? Well, I went to his room, I got the book, and I sat under, it was summertime, and I sat under the ash tree in our yard, and I read it all in one sitting. And I, to this day, you know, I, I, it's like who would, it just inspired me to be a writer. And the second book that inspired me to be a writer, I was a sophomore in high school, so around the same, same age. Um, my English teacher, I was done with my work and she gave me this tiny little book and she goes, well, there's time left. Why don't you read this? And it was John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. And I thought that was the most wonderful book I'd ever read. And I was like, I want to do this. Um, I think I can do this. It took me many years to start, but, but I am a huge reader and I have probably over 2000 books in my library at home. <laughs> I'll be I'll be on an issue of hoarders someday. <laughs> the house is collapsing through all my books. You'll find me in there in the corner. I I was always a reader because I was a lonely child. My parents moved a lot. That's hard to believe. I know. I, I really, uh, I'm still a lonely child. Um, I read incessantly, and I read everything. I mean, everything that everyone else has read. Nancy Drew, Sue Grafton, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as far as mysteries go. Um, but the book that, I don't know if it was the, it wasn't the first book that inspired me, but it was, um, I was inspired by um, Pat Conroy, uh, The Prince of Tides. And it was an awful story about a horrible situation in this family. But ev I, I had post-its on every page that said, you know, this is how to write, or, you know, this is a description that, you know, don't forget this. And it just was fantastic. But you know, I write, I read everything, and I, I also listen to everything because I multitask. <laughs> so, so if I'm not sitting and reading, I'm I've got a, you know, a thing in my head, and I'm listening to a book while I'm doing the dishes or something. So I really love, 
and I, I um, it's just silly, but I went to a conference a few months ago. And uh, you didn't well, just go. You were like the bell of the ball, according to what I heard. <laughs> Where's my crown? Oh, no. um, and I heard that this guy Baldacci was going to be there. <laughs> and I had never read his books because he, he wrote in a genre that wasn't just right outside of what I really, really love. So I got his books and I, I really I went through every single book that he ever wrote. Which is really weird, but um, so I I sort of glom onto authors and see what they're doing. It's kind of fun. I, I do want to mention I read two books at a time. I'll read my morning book before I write, and then I'll read my cocktail book. <laughs> I get dinner teed up. I either am by the pool or in the bath, like Prudence, my novel, and I'll read. Um, I think the cocktail read is I can read whatever I want and read widely, whatever, wherever there's romance, mystery, commercial fiction, literary fiction, memoir. Um, and I sometimes have a lunchtime read, which is usually a short story collection. I'll read a short story. So I think as writers, it's, we read a lot and we read widely. That's great. Why don't we go ahead and open it up to any questions before we run out of time from our audience? Yeah. Somewhere, like, towards the beginning of the talk, you were talking about the process of writing. And, Kate, you said something about plot. There was something, it was more than one word, but it started with plot. Do you have any idea what I was talking about? Do you know the plot? Plot group? Yeah. What, what okay. I... I have uh, two friends, and the three of us meet uh, a couple times a year, or sometimes, well, during the pandemic, we did a Zoom call every few months, and we um, brainstorm. So we will all come with an idea for our next book, and so we're not exactly, um, you know, begging for ideas. You have to come with something. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, we just feed off of each other and we all write mysteries. So, and well, and also romance, rom-coms, anything. You just um, give us an idea and we will kind of run with it. So that's what we do every couple months. There's two of my plot group girls right there. <laughs> Other questions? Um, that happens way too often, and what I want to do is put this book down and start working on that because it's just the new thing. Right. It's the shiny new thing. So um, I just kind of make some notes or just, you know, outline some things and then go back to this book because there's a deadline on this book. And if I meet my deadline, they'll pay me money. This is nothing. <laughs> they won't do anything until I finish this one. So that's what happens. Yeah. Other questions? Now they just released that new Beatles song. 
Michelle talked about how music moves us. How do you then convey that to work? That's a good question. I get asked that. Um, or people mention that about the book. So, um, like I said, when I, um, I think when you write about music, you have to be very concrete when when you're writing it for for a reader to understand. So, um, I always use this example, but I know there's others in the book. But when I, there's a line in the book that the clock chimes chime sound like uh, the chords sound like clock chimes, and so the reader that's very concrete now they know i think it's beethoven's moonlight sonata or one of the songs i wrote about um and then there is another part in the book and i love the beatles and they're in the book too <laughs> or some of their songs and dear prudence i got the name for my character off the beatles song dear prudence but um there is also a passage in the book um it's a Rachmaninoff, I'm forgetting the name of the song, um, 18th Variation. And that song, when I hear it, it reminds me of um, a specific moment in childhood when I was playing on the grass and there were geraniums all around our yard. It just, that song, just boom, that memory of, you know, the yard and my parents and my mom and, you know, a barbecue happening and the way they used to do it back then, you know, everybody dressed up and, you know, ice tinkling in the glass. But so, um, I don't know if I answered your question, <laughs> but just writing about music, it's writing, you know, if you write about how it sounds, you have to be very concrete about it and um, specific emotions, that kind of thing. But, and I just heard the Beatles song today in the car driving down here. And I was like, what? I knew that they had just released this song, but I didn't know what it was. And then I thought, oh my gosh, is this the Beatles? I mean, what Beatles song have you not heard? <laughs> you just mentioned the Beatles. And I'm just wondering, and of course you have Faust and Bach. Um, so some history is incorporated. How much license do you have? in fiction to like i don't know talk about ringo and john or whatever or, or to put it in a specific setting with the book and like maybe what was happening around the author who wrote you have a lot of license when you're writing a book <laughs> you just have to have the people it just has to be believable but every once in a while in a comment you know, some will say, well, that didn't really happen that way, or that's not right, or, you know, and they can say that, but generally, if you can pull it off, you know, I'm trying to think of a specific book somebody's written lately that's used real life and put it into fiction, manipulated it into fiction. And a couple, I think, on Princess Die, where they kind of used her as, oh, and Marilyn Monroe, yes. I think, has always been a big, um, I can't think of her name now, but she's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can manipulate a little bit as long as the reader, it's the reader's, it's logical for the reader, I think. I don't know if you have anything mm -hmm. to say about that. I, just that, um, if I were going to mention the Beatles or a, or a song or something, 
if you go too far, your yes. editor will um, smack you across the face. Well, um, will uh, will pull it out, or they'll go to their legal department, or you know, depends on what is being said. I would I wouldn't say anything like, you know, John and Paul uh, stole from me. You know, I mean, you wouldn't say anything that was. Even even if you made it nice or you know anything, they came to my commune up in the hills. Uh, nothing like that. Yeah. That's just me. Somebody might, but you would your legal department would uh, take care of that. Isn't the one area where they're really touchy is if you use lyrics like yes. those are locked down. Mm -hmm. You can only use them in a title thing, right? I've never used them. I, I, even in a like a dedication or an acknowledgement or something because there's just a lot of I wouldn't say there's a lot of red tape but it's a it can be a problem I uh, don't read my critical reviews <laughs> unless somebody sends them. My, I have a virtual assistant um, who picks out the nice ones and sends them to me. So uh, she's a gem. Um, so I just assume that there aren't any bad ones. <laughs> I'm sure she'd show them to me. Um, but I have read bad ones, and it was by accident, you know. And it ruins my whole day. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I have 27 really great ones, and there was this one that said, meh. <laughs> and that's all it has to There was a review that said, meh. <laughs> it hurt. <laughs> so I don't usually read them. Smart. <laughs> um, I, I've just had very few. Um, and I, you know, I, I think I don't, I, I think once the book is written, it's sort of like, well, all right, you know, um, writing now, writing this book now, the writing a current book, I think you really have to work at not, at censoring, you know, the editor and you, um, Question. Mm -hmm. Where did you get the idea um, for Brooklyn's mom, as far as her, all her wild interests and and her personality and everything? Well, I have you met my mother? No, you haven't. <laughs> um, she was a lovely person. Um, I got the idea of just oh god, I don't know. It was sort of an uh, amalgamation. Is that the right word? I'm a writer. <laughs> um, different people, you know, in my life that that uh, just were made me laugh or made me crazy. Um, but she had uh, in the first book, Brooklyn runs into her in a hallway, and she doesn't know what her mother is doing there because. 
she's out of place here. And she asks her, and her mother just goes, she puts on this little smile, and she calls it the, the sunny bunny face. That's what the whole family calls it. And she just, like, everything is wonderful. Well, my mother did that. We never called it the sunny bunny face, but she was like, hello, sweetie pie, how are you? And she could be furious, and she would, you know, like, put on this face that was, you know, so I did get that from her. But uh, the other, I, I, I don't know, they're... Uh, all in my head. I, just, I don't know. Um, since you write, since you write series, um, do you keep track of like the characters and kind of what they, you know, what they've done in previous books and different things going on or not? That would be a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I try to. I do. I keep a, not really a Bible. A, but um, the copy editor um, picks out all the names and the everything, everywhere she's gone, cities, places. And so I have a list of every book and the names of people that are in the book. So I use that each time I start another book because I can't think of any new names. I have a baby book name that, that, that has like 100,000 names, and I still can't think of a name. Every time, the, the, my latest book is like Bill. That's a great name. And there's like six Bills in my book. So I don't, um, I should pay more attention, and I try to. Um, and my virtual assistant reads my books when I'm finished, and she always goes, you know, she did this in book 12 of uh, so she's she's very sharp and very much more grounded than I am so I need help yeah, question towards the back I did I I I had never been a bookbinder, but I took classes in book arts, putting, you know, making little books. And even when I was like seven years old, the, the park next door had a, uh, you make a little book and you punch holes and you put a ribbon in it and there's your book. And most of my friends who were writers would take that class and write something. And I just made the book. It was really all I could do was make the book. Um, but then I had a friend, a very good friend, who was a master bookbinder. And he um, used we he lived up north, and he would visit us, and we lived down in the L.A. area for a while. So he could we let him spend the night for as long as he was in town. And his um, thank you, his way of thanking us, was to take one of our books from our shelf, a nice, nice book. He would take it home, and he would bind it. And it just beautifully, like leather and wood burned, you know, little, it was just amazing. So that was sort of a inspiration. And then when I started, well, I tried selling my books for a long time, and I got a comment every single time that this is really good, your writing's really good, but there's no hook. And so when I figured out what a hook was, uh, <laughs> 
I I went through my life and uh, I finally came to bookbinding and my friend Bruce is a bookbinder and I went and Googled bookbinder mysteries and there was nothing. There were bookstore, you know, mysteries about bookstores and book collectors and things like this. And so bookbinder. And then as soon as I came up with the idea, it was like, okay, she rare books and the story revolves around the book. And so it just kind of clicked as soon as I came up with it, but it took a little bit of a process to get there. So. And last question. and your inspiration for that. But also, what are you going to do with these dead bodies keep showing up <laughs> in buildings that need to be renovated? <laughs> and it's a small town. <laughs> so where do you go from there? Yeah, well, there's more buildings. Um, yeah, that's a problem. I try not to do a Jessica Fletcher um, syndrome but um brooklyn was concerned all through her books her books <laughs> <not mine>. um <clears throat> she questions here's another dead body what what am i doing in my life that is attracting dead bodies and so she went to guru bob who of course in dharma there's a guru because that's how a you know a commune works. So uh, Guru Bob's, you know, consoled her that you may be playing a role in these people's lives and you are meant to find them and get justice for them. So now she doesn't worry about it. And as far as the buildings, you know, you know, dead bodies in all those buildings, that happens. It's like peanut butter and jelly, right? Um, before we conclude, I'd like to give our authors a chance that they'd like to tell us about what's next from them and how we can learn more about their books. Are you on social media? Do you have websites? Do you receive letters by mail? Why don't we start with you, Kate? <laughs> um, currently, I'm writing the Fixer Upper, the next Fixer Upper, which turns out to be a Christmas book. It wasn't my idea, but anyway, it, it turns out to be a Christmas book. It'll come out next October if I finish it on time. And um, after that, there's another Brooklyn book, and I don't want to give anything away, but I really do. Um, and how can readers oh. find you? Social media? Media. Hmm. I'm on Instagram, uh, threads, no longer Twitter, um, and Facebook and all, you know, all the social media platforms. And I'm katecarlisle.com. And um, I do a lot of Instagrams, so come on over. Michelle? Um, I am... Working on the hook for my next book, um, I have two chapters that I'm going to turn over to my agent, so I can't really talk too much about it yet. Um, we just uh, the hard thing about the second book um, when I wrote the first one, I didn't I didn't outline it. I just knew where the midpoint would be, and I knew the ending. 
But um, now you have to have a synopsis for your second book. So that's been a challenge for me to sit down and try to figure out what's going to happen. But I can't to talk, talk too much about it, but it does take place in Phoenix again. And I'm really excited because um, this time I'm going more into the architecture of Phoenix, more the mid-century modern stuff. Um, I am on Instagram. I think it's Michelle underscore Hoffman. And I post um, my books and I collect pens. I'm really into fountain pens. So I have a little fountain pen collection and I do put the ink in them. <laughs> it can be messy some days. I took a while to learn. And I'm also on Twitter, which is X. Um, Michelle Hoffman, no A in Hoffman. And then Penguin Random House. You can put my name into Penguin Random House and that's where you can buy all my books. They'll show where all the books are sold. I don't, I, well, it's, it's, I, I need a new website. <laughs> it's to come. And before we conclude, I think if you've not had enough of Kate, you're coming back again in December. Something about ugly sweaters. Yes, ugly sweaters. And Paige will be uh, talking about her new Alaska book series, and which is fabulous. So. Never too early to pre-order. You can do that today. I'll do Okay, there you go. I'd like to thank I'd like to thank Kate Carlisle and Michelle Hoffman for joining us today and talking about their books. And thank you for joining us and virtual audience, thank you as well. Thank, thank you, John. You guys. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.